Good morning, everyone. This is Johnny Tan, author of From My Mama's Kitchen, Food for the Soul, Recipes for Living. Happy Wednesday and welcome to From My Mama's Kitchen Talk radio show. Here's a quick announcement. Our June Hot-Centered and Passion-Driven Inspirations for Better Living digital magazine designed to help moms build a better future for themselves, their families, and loved ones is now live at inspirationsforbetterliving.com. This month's theme is Happy Graduation, Dream, Achieve, Become, and a Father's Day special tribute. The magazine offers inspirational stories from our dedicated team of experts to help you navigate your current situation with confidence in your motherhood journey as the COO, if not the CEO, of your family. So please go to inspirationsforbetterliving.com and treat yourself to some engaging, entertaining, and enlightening stories. You deserve it. As for our radio show today, my guest for this morning is Rhea Wong. Rhea is a leadership coach, fundraising executive coach, and marketing branding for fundraising expert. She brings 20-plus years of fundraising experience to help executive directors and development staff tweak their message, clarify their ideal donor, engage their board, and streamline their processes to raise more money. Although Rhea has deep experience with institutional and corporate and event fundraising, she is passionate about major individual donors and helping organizations establish individual giving programs. Rhea has raised millions of dollars in private philanthropy and is excited about building the next generation of fundraising leaders. Rhea has become a leader in the New York nonprofit community and is a frequent educational commentator in the media. She was recognized with the Smart CEO Bravo Award in 2015 and New York nonprofit media's 40 Under 40 in 2017. Rhea's Get That Money Honey book is written and crafted to help nonprofit organizations and their directors with guidance to utilize proven methods in raising more money for their heart-centered organizational missions. When Rhea is not raising money for causes she loves, you'll find her hosting her podcast, Nonprofit Lowdown, on, on stage as a newbie stand-up comedian in downtown Brooklyn. For our kitchen table conversation this morning, Rhea and I will be having a conversation about her remarkable life's journey and her new book, Get That Money, Honey, a comprehensive guide to raising money for your nonprofit. Good morning, Rhea. Happy Wednesday, and welcome to From My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio. How are you doing today? Oh, thank you so much, Johnny. It is a delight to be here. I'm honored, um, and I'm doing great. I'm actually in uh, New York, so I know that's a, a way away from where you are, but um, it's a beautiful day here in New York City. Fantastic. That's wonderful. We're just sitting in the sauna here in Texas. <laughs> ah. <laughs> it's summer, isn't it? There you go. There you go. So true. Well, I have to tell you, Get That Money, Honey is an excellent read. It is very well written, laid out, and extremely insightful. The information shared is very thorough and easy to follow. So congratulations on its release. Thank you very much. It's so nice. Did did my mom give you notes? (laughs) (laughs) She did. She gave me a call. You say, hey, my daughter is coming on, right? So take care of her. I'm just kidding. That's funny. Well, I'm, I'm really glad. And, you know, when I first wrote it, and I wrote it with my 
with my actually former student, uh, Bella Masucci, because she really helped me with it. And I mm-hmm. wanted to write a book that was really approachable, really actionable and entertaining because unfortunately a lot of the fundraising books that I read are, are tend to be pretty dry, pretty academic. And so yes. you know, hopefully you learn something and you were entertained at the same time. That was Yeah, it is. The book is like you say, it's a page turner. Yes, it is a manual, right? Mm-hmm. And a lot of times, as you had mentioned, it's kind of academic and ooh, boring, a little stiff. And believe it or not, in anything that we do, whether broadcasting or in especially in fundraising, we're in the people business. Well, guess what? Reading a book, technically speaking, you got to be engaging. You got to connect yeah. with yeah. the person. <laughs> yeah, statistically, they say that the attention span of people these days is eight seconds, uh, mm-hmm. and for goldfish, it's nine seconds. So your average American <laughs> has a shorter attention span than a goldfish. So that means that if I'm not, or if anybody is not engaging, entertaining, able to grab that attention within eight seconds and forget about it. I mean, we're all in this like TikTok generation, right? We're, we, we're consuming micro content. So, you know, I think Reading has sort of fallen out of fashion, but to the extent that I can keep people entertained and deliver some good value, that's uh, that's what I'm here for. That's true. Very, very true. What I like about it is that, as we had mentioned, when it's all said and done, it is a guidebook, right? So mm-hmm. a lot of things technically can be boring, <laughs> but yeah. you make it such yeah. an entertaining way of approaching it and oh, fun. Yeah, so it's different because it's the old saying goes, it's not what you say, how you say it. That yeah. makes a difference. Well, the other thing I designed the book for was as a workbook. So, you know, I'm sure you've mm-hmm. had this too, where you read a book and you're like, oh, yeah, great ideas. And then you <laughs> put the book away and you basically don't do anything. And so I wanted to make sure that my book was actually going to help people. So if you buy the book, you'll see, you know, there are areas where you make notes and you do exercises and there right. are a bunch of downloads that you can uh, go to my website and download for free to accompany the book that will help you to you know, think through some of the exercises. So I really wanted it to be actionable because I think, especially for your busy nonprofit executive, I mean, there's so many things mm-hmm. coming at you all the time that let me help you. Like, let me try to make something simple. <laughs> right, and, right. You know, so that was the idea behind it. Well, that's great. The one word that came from what you just had mentioned busy nonprofit executives and so forth, first and foremost, everyone, especially in that business, is, mm-hmm. for lack of a better term, you respectfully may not be the right word, but it's kind of stressful, uptight, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah, yeah, the book is sure. very entertaining. It's lighthearted <laughs> in a way, but it's serious. Yeah. It's got plenty, plenty of stuff. And so as you yeah. go through, it warms your heart up, so it gets you into the right mindset, so to speak. So yeah. that's the yeah. wonderful part of the book, and I'm excited about getting into it later in our conversation here. So let's get started by getting to know you a little better. Please give us a quick sure. outlook of your life from childhood to the present moment. Oh, my gosh. Uh, well, I'll try to make it brief, but I grew up <laughs> in San Francisco. Um, I'm you know, second-generation American in a small Chinese-American community in San Francisco. Actually, it's funny. It wasn't until I left San Francisco that I realized that not everybody lived in a Chinese-American community. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And, you know, I grew up, you know, middle-class kid, but I think I very much had that 
you was brought up with that immigrant mentality of like, got to work hard, got to put your head down. Um, and I tell this story a lot, which is when I was eight years old, I grew up in the 80s and 90s. And so that was the height of the AIDS epidemic and crack epidemic in, in San Francisco. And then as now, there are lots of unhoused people who live on the streets. And I remember, you know, this old, he probably wasn't old. I was, I was in his 40s, but I was eight years old. So, you know, he looked ancient to me. And he had a sign, you know, a homeless person. Uh, and he had a sign that said, homeless, please help. And I dug into my pocket and I gave him a quarter because, you know, I'd learned from like Sesame Street that it's good to share, it's good to give. And my dad saw me and he whipped around and he said, oh, so you're so rich now, you can just give money away? And in that moment, I, I felt a lot of shame. And I carried that shame with me well into my adulthood because in my family, because my grandparents had come to America from China with you know, no money, classic American story, money in my family represented safety and stability and security. And so in my dad's mind, psychologically, he was he was thinking that I was giving away my family's security. So, and I, I don't know what your experience with this has been, Johnny, but in mm-hmm. you know, my family, we were very generous within you know, our community, people we considered family, right? Like, Chinese family, like, you don't think twice if your, you know, cousin needs help or someone needs, mm-hmm. you know, money to go to school, whatever, but anyone outside of the family was considered, like, why are you, you know, giving away stuff? So uh, that really, that memory actually didn't surface for me until much later in my career. So I was really, uh, I don't know, I had a hard time being a fundraiser. I was a 26-year-old executive director in New York City. I talk about this all the time. I did two Google searches my first day on my job. Google search one was, what does an executive director do? And Google search two was, how do you <laughs> fundraise? And I just, you know, I was in my role for 12 and a half years. There were many iterations. So even though it was one job, I feel like there were five different jobs within that job. And I just really didn't enjoy fundraising. And it wasn't really until I recovered that memory that I realized that I was putting my own family's psychological baggage mm-hmm. and story about money onto other people. Because I was somehow deep in my psyche believing that by asking people to support the cause, I was asking them to give over their family's stability and security and to experience the shame that I experienced when I gave money away. Now, I, I want to be fair to my parents. They're, my parents are very generous people, but we we didn't grow up with a um, culture of philanthropy in our family, right? Like mm-hmm. you gave money, you kept it in the family, you know, maybe you gave to like your school or whatever it was, but you know, philanthropically we did not give much to charities. And so I, I just wasn't raised with that understanding or, or that kind of ethos. And so um, everything that's in the book was everything I had to teach myself about philanthropy and generosity and giving. Interesting, very, very interesting. Well, as far as for my family is concerned, interestingly enough, I mean, the family is where the classroom, the first classroom you ever attended, people don't realize Mm -hmm. it. (laughs) There's no PowerPoint presentation, but trust Mm -hmm. me, there is. (laughs) Yeah, of course. And so for me, what's interesting is, yes, my families were very giving in the sense that, of course, they grew up during the war. Mm -hmm. They were certainly not rich at all in Malaysia, and so they were middle class as well. But the uniqueness is that the gift from the heart, because mom would teach my sister and I 
I think it's almost about once a week or once every other week that we go to a temple and whatnot, and you have, mm. for lack of a better term, homeless people, beggars, right? Mm-hmm. And so yep. she was very quick to show us, if not much, take whatever we have to give to us. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's an art yeah. of giving and understanding and teaching us, like, for lack of a better term, if there's one to ten, of course, ten is maybe what we may call the rich people or whatever. It doesn't matter. As long as you're about a three or a four or five, there's always mm-hmm. someone is a number one. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Help yeah. that person. Yeah. And so yeah. Yeah. that stayed with me forever, basically. It's one of those things that just sort of been very, very within the system in yep. our, how we were brought up and raised. And of course, not to mention mm-hmm. helping families because family yep. is family, right? Yep. And so yep. that's my exposure to basically learning the concept of giving and sharing and not expecting anything back. And especially like say when you give a street person, but knowing that they put a smile on their face, that's the right. big difference because you contribute yeah. to their happiness in the moment. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's wonderful that uh, that was the lesson that your mother taught you. And, you know, so it's, it's very interesting mm-hmm. because I think, you know, in order to be a really effective fundraiser, you have to interrogate your own relationship and orientation to money. And so often, especially in nonprofits, we come from this scarcity mindset of believing there's not enough in the world. There aren't enough donors. Yeah. There's, not, there's not enough time. There's not enough time. And so when you're operating in this belief of never enough, you're always in this kind of panic mode. I call it you know, survival mode. Mm-hmm. And the survival mode is what stresses us out. Over time, it's what keeps people uh, – I mean, it burns people out. I'm sure you know lots of people who burned out and just mm-hmm. can't do it anymore because you can't pour from an empty cup. And so I think fundamentally the shift that I make myself and that I hope I can make for others is to, it's really an internal shift in your own personal relationship to money because, Mm -hmm. you know, the thing that you mentioned is it is, you know, I do bring kind of a lighthearted energy to it because it's so heavy, right? The things that we're trying to do in the world are so serious. And I think if we let that weigh on our souls, that's when we burn ourselves out. But actually, if you really think about it, the jobs that we have as fundraisers, it's actually an incredible job. Like We are the ones that are able to bring resources to do the work that changes the world. Mm-hmm. And if we can mm-hmm. bring a kind of light energy to it, a kind of uh, enthusiasm, a kind of um, I don't know, just a, a more energetic approach to it, it, it energizes mm-hmm. others around us. Right. I mean, if you're a donor, wouldn't you rather speak to someone who is really kind of upbeat and optimistic and like, yeah, we can do this together versus, oh, and then this like heavy thing is happening in the world. So I don't know. I just think, look, we all have choices. I say this all the time. You know, pain is inevitable. Suffering is optional. So if you don't have to suffer, (laughs) why would you? Mm. You can choose to suffer. I mean, some people really enjoy suffering. So, you know, good on them. But uh, don't suffer if you don't have to. Right, right. That's true. Well, coming back to your journey in itself, what pivotal Mm -hmm. moments in your life's journey that contributed to you developing a passion for wanting to make a difference in the world, as you know? Yeah, that's such an interesting question. You know, I... I don't know that it was any one moment in particular, but, you know, I was always that kid that really wanted things to be fair, right? Fairness Mm -hmm. was a big thing for me. 
um, and I'm sure you, you know that kid who is like looking at you know, the slice of cake and make sure everyone gets exactly the right bit. Like that was, <laughs> <laughs> it was very annoying. Um, but I was also the kid that if I saw another kid on the playground by themselves, I would go over, right? Because I really just, I don't know where that came from, but I really just always had a sense of, um, you know, fairness. I mean, in my life, I've been incredibly lucky uh, to be born in this time, in this set of circumstances, in this period of time. Like, I just think about all of the opportunities that I've had in life. I just think I'm so lucky. Mm-hmm. Why wouldn't I try to pay that forward, right? You know, so I think there was that. I also think, I, I tell the story a lot. So when I was first an executive director, I... um you know, I, I carried a lot of, like, heaviness around, around fundraising, and I had this woman named Liz, who I'd been talking to about possibly being on my board, um, and she said, well, okay, before I would consider being on your board, I'd like to see your budget. Totally reasonable. And um, she called me two days later. She said, Rhea, I need to talk about this budget. This budget. I was like, okay. And she goes, well, it says here that, you know, collectively all of your board members are giving you know, this amount of money. It's like, you know, in five figures. And I was like, yeah, that's right. And she said, well, that's completely unacceptable. I started sweating. I was like, oh, God, where's it going? <laughs> and uh, she said, well, any board that I'm on, the, the board has to make a more substantial commitment. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put up $50,000 as a match. The rest of the board has to raise or give the 50. And then if they need that, I'll give another 50. The check is in the mail. Click. And I was like, what just happened? In one fell swoop, this woman completely change all of the assumptions that I had about philanthropy, about giving, about people who give, right? I always just sort of like, oh, people aren't like, don't really want to give. They're going to give the minimum, blah, blah, blah. Here was this woman who put her money where her mouth was and it completely changed my mind. And all of a sudden, all of the assumptions I ever made about people who give and generosity and whatever went out the window. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think my performance coach says, you know, you're, your willingness to be wrong will affect the quality of your life. All of a sudden, I was like, mm-hmm. what if I'm wrong about everything? What, <laughs> what if I, all these assumptions, these beliefs I had about people and money and whatever, completely wrong. So anyway, very long-winded way of saying there have been these sort of pivotal moments in my life where my assumptions and beliefs about the world have really been challenged. And I'd like to think, for the most part, I, I am also very stubborn, but for the most part, I've been open to changing my mind, right? When I see mm-hmm. new information, new data, I change my mind. Very interesting. How did you arrive at that moment in time? What passion that developed into a career, basically, things that have driven you to that point? Because you weren't born like, okay, guys, I'm going to be in the nonprofit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Then no, I go to school, people are like, yeah, you see a nonprofit bachelor's degree. <laughs> <laughs> No, it's funny. I actually have a political science degree, so I thought mm-hmm. I would, you know, like all poli students, either go to law school, or mm-hmm. actually I thought I was on my way to a career in journalism. And it was early two thousand, mm-hmm. so I was like, oh, this, uh, I don't know, this print journalism thing doesn't seem like a growth industry. <laughs> um, so actually, the truth is, I um, so I ran an organization called Breakthrough New York, and it, it was the original site was in San Francisco. I had been a student. And so I had directly benefited from being part of this nonprofit. It opened all of these doors for me in my life. I ended up going mm-hmm. to a private school, and you know, through that, I had 
so many opportunities. Like I got to live in Europe. I went to an awesome college. Like all of these things had happened just as a result of being part of this program. And so once I graduated from college, moved back home, um, I, it was very you know, sort of serendipitous. I called them up one day to see if they needed volunteers. I was like, oh, I remember, you know, I'd been part of this program. And they said, well, you know, turns out we actually have a, a program assistant position open. So great. Um, and the thing about nonprofits, which I didn't realize, is if you stick around long enough, they give you the top job. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so I'm incredibly grateful, but also in retrospect, realizing that I was completely unqualified, underqualified, mm-hmm. unqualified to do what mm-hmm. I was doing. So I started as a program assistant in like two years. I had been um, promoted into a recruitment manager, so I was mm-hmm. running recruitment at college, like top colleges around the country. I was like 23 years old. I'm like, what was I doing, right? But you know. Part of it is you don't know what you don't know. So I was like, sure, I, I can figure it out. <laughs> like, <"Yeah." laughs> um, and then at the age of 26, I was recruited away to run our New York site. Again, I didn't know mm-hmm. anything about anything. But um, I think if there's any secret to my success, it's this belief of, yeah, I'm sure I can figure it out. <laughs> like everything is figure outable. <laughs> um, and so it, it's almost a little bit like I imagine being an ED is I don't have children of my own but I imagine Mm -hmm. it's a little bit like having kids like you actually have no idea how hard it is until you're in the thick of it but on the you know before you truly know how hard it is you're like yeah it's gonna be great Mm -hmm. (laughs) it'll just Mm -hmm. be fun all the time um (laughs) so in a way I think ignorance is bliss because if people truly understood how difficult it is I don't know that many people would do it it is terrific because it seems you allow curiosity to lead the way. Yeah, well, I allowed curiosity and I allowed, um, I don't know, you know, in some ways it's interesting. It feels like in many ways, I mean, I don't know how woo-woo you get, but it, it almost feels like this has been my avocation, right? Like I feel like I've been called to do this. I, I just feel like the nonprofit sector, I look, I have – my beef with it, I have pet peeves, but what is true and what continues to be true is the people who choose to dedicate their lives to nonprofits mm-hmm. tend to be the most generous, the most kind people in the mm-hmm. world, right? So mm-hmm. I, talk, I, you know, I talk with friends of mine who are in for-profits, and it's always like the people kind of suck. <laughs> you know, they're like, oh, <laughs> like it's so cutthroat, and so there's so much competition, and blah, blah, blah. In general, nonprofits... I don't feel like that at all. I feel like we're all in this together. We're trying to do a thing. We're learning from each other. We don't really see each other in comp- as competition in the same way. Mm-hmm. And, like, you don't get into nonprofit because they're trying to make money. <laughs> you get into nonprofit right. because you are called to a higher purpose. So, I don't know. I think that's what really has kept me in the industry because I just think the people who are in nonprofit are my kind of people, right? Like, you have mm-hmm. something bigger that you're doing that is, bigger than a paycheck like you're trying to change the world and i want to be around those people well you are always looking through the lens of love so that makes a big difference and you're looking for solutions so that's what in many ways i mean curiosity can lead us in many different ways but in your particular track that's what you're looking at and that any time when you run into something, like you say, I don't know what's out there, but that curiosity turns chaos into peace because you're looking through the lens of love and you've felt the drive to 
just continue to go down, and then you see some similarities. The same thing from the standpoint of the fruits of your labor in terms of when you contribute to someone's happiness, then you yeah. became a blessing in their life. And that in well, return, the reciprocation that you're getting, it's that wonderful abundance within yourself, so to speak. Oh, well, I, I thank you. That, that's very kind to say. You know, I, I, it's funny that you say it. Like, it actually makes me uncomfortable um, mm-hmm. to say it because I feel like I've been so lucky in my life to be able to serve. Um, mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so, you know, I, I definitely feel like I've gotten more than I've given. Mm-hmm. Um but I think about Einstein once said, the most important decision you can make in your life is to decide whether you live in a friendly or a hostile universe, something like that. Right. I probably butchered it. Um, and I just <laughs> think, you know, through the lens of love, as you say, if you really just believe that the universe is conspiring on your behalf and that things are largely going to be fine, that's not to say that bad things won't happen, that, you know, you won't experience like, sad things, you know, like, but it's like, Net, net, like my life has worked out pretty well. Right? I'm healthy. My <laughs> loved ones are healthy. I live in a world where I'm safe. I have clean running water. I have a house mm-hmm. to live in. I have a bed to sleep in. I have clothes on my back. I have food on the table. Like life is pretty great, right? And I think sometimes <laughs> when we don't um, acknowledge the blessings that we have, that's when we get into a lot of the, the negative Right. or like thinking about all the things that are like going wrong instead of all the things mm-hmm. that are going right. Like, look, Johnny, I woke up this morning. Like, what a blessing. <laughs> like, hey, <laughs> not everyone gets to wake up in the morning. Yeah. So I don't know. I, I I just think big picture, if you take a step back, like we're all doing pretty well. Like we're not, right. know, most of us are not in a war zone. Like we're mm-hmm. all able to like take care of our basic needs. We have love in our lives. Like, well, what more do you want? That's right. Very, very true. So true. What are some of the common challenges that all nonprofits face regarding fundraising? Oh, all? Mm, hard to say. I can give you some common mm-hmm. ones sure. that I've experienced. Yeah. Like, all all mm-hmm. is a very strong. Okay. So many things. So in general, I would say common denominators to nonprofits that I see that are most successful is number one, uh, having an executive director or CEO who understands that the job is fundraising. So what happens a lot of times is that somebody will be promoted up usually from a program position, right? So they're really good at running Mm -hmm. a program. They don't necessarily know how to fundraise, but they're given this job. And so they either figure out how to do it, or they decide to do something like, I'm going to hire a development director and basically delegate all of the, the work to them. That's a problem because I, especially if you're in a small shop, and by small I mean you know under, let's say, $2 million a year mm-hmm. in private revenue, mm-hmm. you are the main fundraiser. Like You are the face of the brand. It's mm-hmm. almost like you know university presidents, like they might have been really good professors, but when they become the university president, they actually have to fundraise. Like the job is different. And so right. the people that I see, the organizations, nonprofits that I see struggling are the ones that have leaders that don't actually understand that the substantive job has changed and that mm-hmm. the vast majority of their time should be spent fundraising because they are the face of the brand. They are the brand. And especially mm-hmm. when it comes to high net worth individuals, they want to have access to the top person, right? Like they want to talk right, to the person right. in charge. And if you're not sure. actively 
in there. Um, that's the problem. So that's the first thing. The second, I would say, is not understanding the intersection of marketing and fundraising. So mm-hmm. a lot of times what I see is that marketing departments and fundraising departments operate completely separately from <laughs> each other. They're siloed. But the successful ones understand that marketing feeds fundraising. Mm-hmm. So what do I mean by that? Like, I think we all need to be on the same page about the fact that marketing should drive in a for-profit term leads or you know, in nonprofit prospects into the pool. And mm-hmm. the point of marketing is to establish trust with your audience. It's to uh, create awareness, right? Like if I don't know you're out there, <laughs> I'm not going <laughs> to donate to you. But right. if I know you're out there, are you creating content that continues to build interest in me or trust in me? So I would say that's the second thing is not understanding how those two things work together. I mean, I mm-hmm. could go on and on, but like this is the top list that comes up. Uh, the third thing is a board that doesn't understand that their job is fundraising. <laughs> so yeah. a lot of times, especially with startups, you'll have people who are like friends of the founder or whatever, or mm-hmm. I'm, I'm mm-hmm. recruited because I really understand the program. Mm-hmm. That's fine, but at a certain point when the organization needs revenue, the board right. needs to do something different. It's almost like they either have to upgrade and change what they're doing or be mm-hmm. replaced. It's a, it's, you know, and look, the point is that we're all in the process of upgrading, right? Like mm-hmm. internally, mm-hmm. as the organization grows, I need to upgrade my skill set. I need to upgrade my level of responsibility. I need to upgrade what I do every day and who I'm talking to, I need my team to upgrade and I need my board to upgrade. So the mistake I see is that boards generally have not upgraded or Mm -hmm. realized what their new scope of responsibility is. And often EDs are trying to get board members to, I don't know, like change what they do. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's almost like, you know, listen, if you bought a bicycle, you can't expect it to perform like a Ferrari. Like, it's a bicycle, right? So <laughs> you have to either be like, can I get this bicycle to as fast as it can go, or do I need to replace it for right. a Ferrari? So I think, right. um, you know, really having some tough decisions around the business and, like, what kind of skills and people you need around you in order to get to the next level, like, that's a mistake I see. Um I see the mistake of being really um, kind of wrong-headed about donors. So mm-hmm. a lot of times, and again, I I don't want to assume, but let's make <laughs> an assumption that, you know, we've all had the experience of donating to an organization, right? Maybe I get a, a perfunctory email thank you note, and then I don't hear from mm-hmm. them for a year until they want to ask me for money again. And I'm like, right, right. what do you? What did you do with my money? You know what I mean? Like I right, right, right. I it's almost like that that teenager who only calls when they need money. You're like, okay, <laughs> but here I was like the whole year, and you didn't tell me what you did with my money. You didn't give me a sense of what impact I had. Like, and maybe the right. you know whatever. Maybe my hundred bucks wasn't a lot of money to you, but I'd still like to know what what you did with my money. And so I think as a sector, we're not very good at uh, retention 
Because fundamentally, what I think people don't understand in the sector is it's an exchange of value. I give money because I want something to happen in the world, like some change, or maybe I give because someone I love asked me to, like whatever the thing is, right? Mm -hmm. What the organization needs to deliver back if we want to keep this relationship going is you need to deliver value back to me in the form of helping me to understand what my impact was so I feel good about the money I just gave. Right, right. Instead, I think a lot of nonprofits treat their donors like ATM machines that they just go and like come at them for money, you know, once a year or whatever it is. So I think if we actually as a sector understood that we were in the business of value exchange, Mm -hmm. how would our meetings be different? How would our communications be different? How would our um, solicitations be different? So, um, Mm -hmm. I mean, I could go on and on, but those are kind of the biggies that I Interesting. Very, very interesting. That's very, very true. By the way, you're listening to From My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio. Our podcasts are available on iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitches Radio, Blueberry Podcasting, TuneIn Radio, Mixcloud, Podchaser, Listen Notes, and Hop Hopper. I'm Johnny Tan, your host. Here's a quick reminder to treat yourself to our June edition of our hot-scented and passion-driven Inspiration for Better Living digital magazine at inspirationsforbetterliving.com. My guest for this morning is Rhea Wong. Rhea is a leadership coach, fundraising executive coach, and marketing branding for fundraising experts. She's bring 20-plus years of fundraising experience to help executive directors and development staff tweak their message, clarify their ideal donors, engage their board, and streamline the processes to raise more money. Although Rhea has deep experience in institutional, corporate, and event fundraising, she is passionate about major individual donors and helping organizations establish individual giving programs. Rhea has raised millions of dollars in private philanthropy and is excited about building the new generation of fundraising leaders. Rhea has become a leader in the New York nonprofit community and is a frequent educational commentator in the media. She was recognized with the Smart CEO Brava Award in 2015 and New York Nonprofit Media's 40 Under 40 in 2017. Our kitchen table conversation this morning is about her remarkable life's journey and her new book, Get That Money, Honey, a comprehensive guide to raising money for your nonprofit. Well, Rhea, how will Get That Money, Honey help this nonprofits? Yeah, that's a good question. So I think it can help in a bunch of different ways. Uh, I think probably the, mm, I'm going to say the three most important things that you can get Mm -hmm. from the book. I think there's a lot more, but in my mind, the three is number one, uh, it will help you to examine your own relationship to money. Because I really Mm -hmm. think your mindset is 80% of the job, right? Johnny, are you a, have you ever played sports? Yeah. Now, when you're, Playing sports, how much of the of your success is your mindset? I would say close to eighty, ninety percent because it's the attitude. It's what you perceive. That's right. That's right. That's right. I think the same thing about fundraising. I, I think of fundraising as a full contact sport, but you know, so often we ignore the psychology part of the job and we talk about the tactics and this is how you should write your annual appeal and blah blah blah. But we never actually talk to people about their their performance mindset and their relationship to money. And P.S., like fundraising is about money. Like you have to talk to people about money, right? And Mm -hmm. so much of 
we all bring so much baggage about money or trauma about money to the table. So I think that's the single most important thing, which is why it's the first chapter, because I think it's the, you know, the one key to rule them all, <laughs> like Lord of the Rings. <laughs> um, the second thing I think is really important is constructing your ideal donor avatar. So what I mean by that is, let me back up. A lot of the fundraising advice that we received and certainly I received was based mm-hmm. on an old model, right? Mm-hmm. As a as a consumer, our buying habits have changed, our viewing habits have changed. Like if I want to buy something, I don't go to a store anymore. I go online, maybe I read some you know reviews, and then I decide to buy it or not buy it, right? I don't talk mm-hmm. to anybody, um, or if I do, I, I like send an email. And so the old school model of fundraising is very much based in this old school way of consumption of like, oh, you're going to sit through like an hour long webinar or you're going to like meet me for coffee or I'm, I want to like have an online meeting with you. That's not how people are operating in their day to day lives. So why do we assume that they're going to do that in their philanthropic lives? So I think then we also just make so many assumptions about who they are, what they want. I mean, did you ask them whether they want to meet you for coffee? Did you ask them whether or not they <laughs> want to go on a site? That, like, no, probably not, right? But you're making these assumptions. So I think the second most important thing is construct an ideal donor avatar. And by that, I mean, look at your top 10% of donors, right? Take one donor as an example. We all have one or two donors that are like, man, if I just had 10 more of those people, I'd be set, right? Mm-hmm. Use that person as an avatar. Think about the demographics, you know, their age, their race, their sex, where they live, their job, et cetera. But also think about their psychographics. Like, what do they care about? Why mm-hmm. do they care about this organization? What's their motivation here? And what is your basis for your understanding, your basis for knowledge? Because right? a lot of times we just assume, like, well, this person must support education because they have kids. I don't know. Did you ask? So think about it in a for-profit way. I can't buy something online without a survey popping up into my face, right? right. We never do that in nonprofits. So what I would suggest is going through this book and using the donor avatar exercise to both construct an avatar, your assumptions, then you pick up the phone and you interview, right? You do an analysis, a uh, comparison against like what you thought you knew versus what actually is being you know, said, thought, believed, whatever. And then this is the third part. You then are able to tweak your messaging so it's attractive to that kind of a donor. Because I think the other mistake that we make in nonprofits is our marketing tends to be very, very general, tends to be pretty blah, right? Mm -hmm. We're trying to get to the masses. But think about this. You know, back in the 90s, all of us were sitting in front of our TVs at 8 p.m. on a Thursday to watch Friends. (laughs) <laughs> no more, right? All of us are yeah. on our little own viewing habits. So we're fractionalized as a market. We're right. hyper-specific, hyper-personalized. And people, nonprofits, need to be able to recognize that Like things have changed. You can't go after the masses anymore. Like there's literally no product on this planet that is for everybody. Like Mm -hmm. Coca-Cola has 
a bajillion dollars to spend on marketing. Apple has a bajillion dollars to spend on marketing, much more than your average nonprofit, and they can't even get all of the people, right? So what are you going to do with your tiny little budget? Instead, I think the strategy is to get uh, what my friend Louis called micro-famous, right? Mm -hmm. Find your tribe, serve them, and go deep, not broad. But you can't do that unless you know who they are and what they care about and what messages will attract them. So those are kind of like the big three that I think I hope people will take away from the book. Very, very interesting. That's so true, though, because life goes in one direction, forward. Society goes in one direction, forward. And good, mm-hmm. bad, or ugly, unfortunately, it's still forward. <laughs> and mm-hmm. we have to adapt to the situation, so to speak. I, I'm just being facetious here. It was so funny when I read the chapter you talk about the wallet test. Why not the uh, purse test? <laughs> well, you know, because I know I'm just teasing about the wallet test. Wait, wait, wait. I know. I was just kidding. But please tell us about that. How does the wallet test really contribute to our money mindset? Yeah, this is really funny. Um, so I think your wallet is sort of indicative of your relationship to money. Mm. And um, and what I mean by that is, you know, if I look at a messy wallet and have like, you know, receipts stuffed in there and like, you know, your bills all kind of which way, I could probably guess that you are not the kind of person that has an orderly financial life, that you're probably letting the bills stack up, a bunch of unopened mail, that you have <laughs> – feelings about money that are usually not positive, right? Compared to someone that I see as a very organized lot and all of the bills are facing one way, I'm like, okay, you probably have like a very disciplined approach to to money. And the other thing is like your wallet is literally where your money lives, though more and more, you know, it, it's all digital. But you have to give your wallet, your money a nice home to live in. <laughs> so if you have a nice wallet, what you're telling the money is like, come live in this nice little little house that I've given you. Uh, mm-hmm. Like, does your money want to live in a dingy, beat up, disorganized wallet? Probably not. So I think there's something <laughs> there too about you know the message that you're sending the universe. Like, can I ask you, Johnny, what does your wallet look like? It's more towards the roughed up and all that. And the reason for that is because I, out of uh, love through the lens of love, I am actually using my dad's wallet. Ah, okay. Oh, my so God. That's been like, value. Yes, mm-hmm. yes, yes. But you're right. Everything inside is very well organized. The $1 bills are the $1 bills straight up. After that, mm-hmm. you get the 5 the 10 you name it. It's mm-hmm. all very clean and organized when you look at the wallet. And this is really funny because that was when leather was made from the United States. And he bought mm-hmm. it in Malaysia. When he passed, my mom gave that to me, and it's actually breaking apart, but I'm still carrying it. Yeah, so what that says to me is you're probably very good at organizing your finances and your personal you know, life is, is in order, but that you're also very sentimental and that you're mm-hmm. very family-focused because you're carrying this memento of your father around. Is that accurate? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, I have a couple of pictures of him in that because it came with the wallet. So when my mom sure. gave me that, I said, sure. And then it was interesting to my dad at that time carried some of the British dollar bills. Oh, because wow. Okay. was part of the colonial thing. So I had like, a, like yep. two or three of them. I just kind of left it in there. And uh-huh. so it was kind of nice sentimental, like you say. When you look on the outside, like, whoa. <laughs> yeah. Wait, are you the kind of person that likes to collect mementos of things, like uh, lots of memorabilia? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. It, yeah, it's very funny. So in my wallet, like it's there, like I, I probably have more in it than I should, but like <laughs> very organized, almost like I, I don't really carry cash anymore. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But the wallet itself is one I pick up in Paris, right? So like if you look at that wallet, you're like, wow, this is someone who it's kind of anal retentive. It's true. Uh, <laughs> I'm kind of a minimalist. I like to throw things out, but my husband is a maximalist, so we balance each other out. But if it were up to me, I'd live in an empty apartment. So anyway, that's a whole other thing. Um, but, you know, there were definitely times in my life before I really got a handle on my own money story mm-hmm. that, like, my wallet was a mess. I had, like, receipts and, you know, like, I didn't really mm-hmm. even know how much money I had in there. And it was a mess, right? So it's I think your wallet is a, a symbol of your relationship to money. Mm-hmm. True. In reading your book, what catches my mind is like the money concept here, right? How mm-hmm. the respect of money. I've always been a giver. So to a certain extent, I've been very successful and then been down the pits because there's certain things in life that you can't plan for. So there's a certain point mm-hmm. where in, in some ways being facetious in the sense that maybe you disrespect money because you don't value it as much. And then guess what? Mm. It, got away from you mm-hmm. and like mm-hmm. oh <laughs> so the mindset is critical definitely critical one of the things that I really enjoy you talk about in your book is that a good storyteller is essential in fundraising tell us a little bit more about mm-hmm. that yeah it's such a good so uh i'm going to get into a little bit of brain science here so there's a, <laughs> a, a guy in texas he's a professor dr russell james what he did is he put people in an mri machine uh, mm-hmm. and scan their brains. And when you talk to them about business, one part of the brain lit up. When you talk about philanthropy and charity and giving, a different part of the brain lit up, and it's the same part of the brain that lights up when we talk about emotion and when we talk about family. Mm-hmm. So what that tells us is that philanthropy is actually an emotional act, not a logical act. And the way that we are able to get to uh, light up, so to speak, the emotional parts of the brain is through story, right? Like anybody who's seen uh, a movie knows that the story evokes an emotion, right? Like I'm sure you've mm-hmm. sat through a scary movie and you've been on the edge of your seat like, oh, no, don't go into that basement. <laughs> so your, your logical brain knows it's not real, right? You see it on the screen. But your emotional brain is experiencing it as if it's really happening, right? You're feeling anxiety. Mm-hmm. You're feeling like the cold sweat. You're feeling that, ah, don't do it. Um, and so uh, as smart as our brains are, our brains are also kind of dumb in that they don't nec- it doesn't necessarily <laughs> differentiate between what's actually happening and what it's feeling is happening. And the way that we get there is through story. And so if you're a really good storyteller, you are able to pull out the details to make people feel as if they are there. And when you make people feel as if they're there. Like, I'm sure you've experienced very talented storytellers who are like, make mm-hmm. you laugh, make you cry, make you cringe. Like, oh my gosh, right? Yeah. That emotional experience is where philanthropy lives. And so, and then one last thing I'll say, there's this amazing uh, intellectual named Yuval Harari who points out that story is the way that human beings as a species have been successful. Because look, as a species, like we're not the fastest, we're not the fiercest, we don't have the biggest teeth, we don't have the biggest claws. Uh, but what we do have is the ability to tell story. And what story does is allows us to cooperate at scale. And that's how we've become 
the most successful species on the planet. Maybe bacteria might be more mm-hmm. successful. But, um, you know, we can tell stories about countries, about companies, about nonprofits, about the world, about family, right? And it's really just this imagined community that is connected through story that makes us feel that we have a relationship to one another, right? Like, I mean, Mm -hmm. with your family, what is it aside from like biologically speaking that makes you feel connected to your siblings or to your, your parents? It's a story about like, this is our family. These are the things that we do. This is how we behave. This is how we're connected. So anyway, I I just think everything is about story. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Very, very true. How about community-centric fundraising? What's that all about? Yeah, that's interesting. So it's a um, kind of new school, Mm -hmm. a new school of thought coming out of the Pacific Northwest. And it's about how uh, communities should be at the center of fundraising. So for a long, long time, we had... Mm -hmm what we call donor-centric fundraising, which basically means that we, you know, put the donor up on a pedestal and it's almost like, you know, hero worship of like, oh, because you wrote the chest, like, yay, like, you're the hero of the story. <laughs> and I think that has led to a lot of very uh, unhealthy behaviors of people who mm-hmm. believe that because they write the check, they get to make the call. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think community-centric fundraising has been developed as a response to donor-centric, which is actually it's about the community and that we all have an equal part in this. So regardless of whether you have the the ability to write the biggest check, um, you should be as equally valued if you're, say, someone who uh, can give time, not money, and so forth. So there's a lot there that I think is really, really compelling. Um, I don't know that I subscribe 100% to either school, so I'm kind of in the middle. Uh, which right. is, I think, I think, I think that we shouldn't make donors the saviors, right? Like that's not healthy. But I also think that everyone wants to be the hero of their own story. And so, right. with fundraisers, how can we make mm-hmm. everyone the hero? Whether it's the community volunteer, whether it's the people that we serve, whether it's our donors, whether it's our board. How can we be the facilitators or the guide of the hero's journey that we're all on? Like, we're all just the main right. characters for our own personal movies. We all right. want to feel special. We all want to feel like we're important. We all want to feel like we've made an impact. So I don't think it's about making money the center of the of the relationship. I think it's about making the work the center of the relationship mm-hmm. and making making everybody a part of the story and a hero in their own way. Sure. Very interesting. Definitely. What is the number one stumbling block for all brand new nonprofit startups? Hmm, number one stumbling block. You know, it's interesting. I think a lot of times <laughs> nonprofit folks, mm-hmm. especially founders, don't realize that they're actually starting a small business. Mm-hmm. So what I find is, and uh, there's this book called E-Myth Revisited that I love, A lot of times with a small nonprofit, let's say you have a founder who's a visionary, big idea, you know, big dreams is how we're going to change the world. So so within every entrepreneur, there is three people, the visionary, the tactician, and the manager, right? The Mm -hmm. tactician is the person who's actually good at doing the thing. So let's say you're 
I'm going to make an example. Let's say you decide that you want to save the pandas, right? Okay, so that's mm-hmm. my vision. My big dream is I'm going to save all the pandas. Then tactically, I might be really good at, you know, working with pandas or working with zoologists or whatever the thing is. I, I don't know anything about pandas. The mistake that a lot of people make is that they ignore the manager. And the manager is the one that mm-hmm. sets up the systems and the processes for the organization to work as a business, not just like a, a glorified hobby. Mm-hmm. And so the mistake that I see a lot is that um, the most times people have not developed the infrastructure around the organization that they want to build. And what the infrastructure will give you is repeatable processes, systems, um, predictability, and sustainability in the system. And a lot of times, too, that means that they are not hiring in enough time. So it's usually the ED doing all the things and not delegating, especially the founders. Founders, I, I, I know you guys. I won't, I'm i one of you. I understand it's very hard to delegate because you're like, well, no one can do it as well as I can. So I would say to all the founders listening, if you can find someone who can do it 80% as well as you can, you should delegate it away. So the other mistake I see is, uh, nonprofit founders in particular trying to do too many things that are outside of their wheelhouse of what I call the mm-hmm. zone of genius. Right. What you're really good at, what your highest and best use is to be the face of the organization, to do fundraising, to, to you know, do the marketing. Anything else that is not that, you should either delegate, automate, or eliminate. Beautifully put. <laughs> Looking back, how has embracing your exceptional talent and gift impacted your life? Oh, my gosh. Uh, exceptional <laughs> talent and gift. I, I, I don't know that I would necessarily say that. Um, let's see. I mean, I think I'm really good at making what seem to be intimidating concepts very relatable. Mm-hmm. I think I'm really good at starting things up. I'm kind of an energizer. Um I think I'm really good at building relationships. And so I think those three things have meant that I, you know, started my own business, uh, the one that I'm in. I started the nonprofit. I wasn't technically a founder, but I, you know, scaled it. So, um, yeah, I think I've just been really able to be part of really good things happening and been surrounded by people that I like and respect and help to do stuff. So I don't know that I... I would say, like, I'm so exceptional at this, but I think, uh, mm-hmm. and I think curiosity actually has gotten me a long way. So to come all the way back to the beginning, which is, I'm I'm a very curious person, right? And I <laughs> have a belief that I can figure most anything out. So mm-hmm. what that has meant is I, I, you know, sometimes I've gotten bitten in the butt, but, you know, I jump first and ask questions later, but it's landed me <laughs> in some very interesting opportunities. So I think a lot of times people don't, they don't go on a limb. They don't go outside of their comfort zone. They overthink things, mm-hmm. and then they talk themselves out of it because it's like if the conditions aren't perfect, and I don't, I'm not like perfectly qualified for all of the things. Right. Qualification usually happens in the doing. So, right. and look, obviously there are limits. Like I wouldn't suggest going to try to perform brain surgery without <laughs> qualification. The training. I mean, that's true. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. But mm-hmm. you know, for a lot of things, it's a lot less complicated than you think it is. And you'll learn a lot by just doing it and trying it versus trying to, you know, think your way through it. Like I, I talk about this a lot with my fundraising folks. It's like, okay, if you're learning how to ride a bicycle, 
you can study the physics of it. You can go on Wikipedia and study the history of mm -hmm. bicycle riding. You can do all the things, right? You can look at all the different designs. But at the end of the day, to learn how to ride a bike, the only way that you can do it is get on the bike and ride and fall off right. a couple times. Like that's right. the only way it is through. And so I think, um, you know, the hesitation that a lot of people have is like, I'm not going to be able to ride the bike perfectly, so I'm not even going to try. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So true. That's very true. Yeah. Where can someone go to buy your book, get more information about you and all your additional offerings and keep up with your latest happenings? Yeah. Well, um, my website is the best place to get all the things. I have a weekly free newsletter, which folks are definitely welcome to join at Ria Wong, R-H-E-A-W-O-N-G.com. The book is available on Amazon. And um, I just want to let your listeners know that I am opening my cohort so I do this twice a year. I work with a small group of largely executive directors that are at a million above mm -hmm. uh, to implement a major gift program. And so I'm recruiting for that now. It starts September 15th. So if people are interested, applications close July 14th. Uh, apply. If I think you're a good fit, we'll schedule an interview. And then um, you might be one of the 20 that I accepted in the program. Fantastic. That sounds really wonderful. As we close this hour, since our show is about people and family living life, what would you like to share as a recipe for living with our listeners this morning? As a recipe? <laughs> um, it's funny. I I wish this was about family, but it's not. It's, uh, I guess the recipe would be it's better to ask forgiveness than permission. Wonderful. Very interesting. Very, yeah. very interesting. Rhea, thank yeah. you for the great recipe for living and for spending this hour with me on From My Mom's Kitchen Talk Radio. To all our listeners, please join me next Wednesday morning, June 28th at 10 a.m. Central Time. My guest will be Amy Newmark, the publisher and editor-in-chief for Chicken Soup for the Soul. In celebrating Chicken Soup's 30th anniversary, Amy and I will be having a conversation about their latest release, which is the original Chicken Soup for the Soul plus 30 bonus stories. For additional information about this show and future shows, please go to FromMyMama'sKitchenTalkRadio.com. Thank you for listening and have a blessed week. Rhea, it's been a true pleasure. Thank you again and have a very blessed day. Thank you so much, Johnny. This has been so fun. Thank you. Bye-bye.